Come with me if you want to live. and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Here we are. Hey, hey. How's it going, man? Good, 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 man. I'm just enjoying uh, Florida summer here. It's great. It's only been a few days since we recorded last, which is kind of interesting. You know, usually it's like a couple of weeks, but we're trying a new thing where we record like a little bit more consistently, a little more often. So this is our second episode this week we're recording. And this episode is something that I think, you know, but obviously Nick and I are both excited about this one, but I think this is one that like most people will be able to get excited about. We're recording about the Terminator franchise today. We're going to be talking about James Cameron's original Terminator film, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And we'll probably talk a little bit about some of the sequels after that, which, you know... You know, as much as much as I want to slight like the any of the sequels, I've seen them all. Oh, yeah. It's not It's like every single one that comes out. I'm just like, I don't care if it's good or not. I'm going to watch it because I love the series. Right. The only one I haven't seen yet is Terminator Genesis, which I think is the most recent one or maybe it's the next to most recent one. Yeah, Dark Fate was yeah. 2019 and uh, Genesis was 15. Okay, yeah, so I've, I've seen Dark Fate, but I never saw Genesis. So you'll have to lead the discussion when we get to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Anything interesting happened to you this week? I'm stoked right now to be back, you know, at the beach where it's really warm and hot. But it, it's actually like my kind of favorite time of year. It's because... It's a little dystopian here on the Gulf Coast because we've got so many hurricanes again. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that means good surf and not only good surf, but surf where the water is so warm. And it's even warmer where I am right here in the north Gulf Coast, like between Pensacola and Panama City. The water's warmer here in the summer. It always has been. Then even in like down in Central America where I go a lot, like Nicaragua or uh, Costa Rica. So I'm pumped. And we're about to get another like three days of swell because a big hurricane just came into the Gulf of Mexico and it should be hitting, I think, Texas on Monday or Tuesday. So it's kind of like one of those weird things where you're like, I'm hoping for some hurricanes, but then you know it could just be so devastating for some people. Here in Colorado, it's wildfires, you know, and it's obvious climate change is making extreme weather more common. More extreme yeah, and more common, yeah. And more extreme. Like we, 2020 was the hottest year on record and 2021 is already set to pass that. You know what I mean? So like it's getting hotter. It's causing the weather to change. Obviously, the wildfires are a big deal. Like the Dixie Fire in California is still going, and it's at 780,000 acres or something like that. It's the largest wildfire in California state history now. Dude, you know what, man? If you think about it, this is such an interesting thing to where there is this human propensity to just completely like after you hear about something long enough, you just get over it. And like, I kind of have forgotten about the fire. You're right. That's just been going on. How long this Dixie fire? 
I mean, uh, it's and been I'm like not, it's, three months, I think. Oh, two, two or three months. It's been going on forever. I try to keep up with it because here where I am, the wind blows off of the Pacific Ocean across the continent typically. So we end up getting some of that smoke from it from time to time, like all the way here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it'll be like difficult to see at a distance. And, you know, you'll smell it in the air and everything from 1,500 miles away or however far away California is. But yeah, it's only 40% contained at this point, you know, but the last I looked, I think I looked like two or three days ago after it gets down below a certain percentage, like it becomes a lot easier to contain unless the winds pick up again or the drought continues or whatever. We have a drought here in Colorado too. So dude, it's so the drought is so bad, you know, growing up in Vegas, everything, the water, everything revolves around Lake Mead where they, they mm-hmm. dammed off the Colorado River back in the day. And so that water supplies from Lake Mead supplies, you know, Arizona, California, and not just in, in Vegas and all that, but not just these Western states, but it supplies farmers who grow oh, yeah. all the food to which we're all dependent on. So right. it's funny where, you know, it's it, where people are like, ah, drought doesn't really affect me. I'm in the South. I mean, it's like, no, man, it affects Everybody. It affects everyone, 100%. <laughs> yeah. There's tons of people left out there that refuse to acknowledge that human activity is driving climate change. You know, whenever I get into a discussion about it with somebody, there's inevitably someone who's like, climate change happens all the time. It's happened throughout Earth's history and everything, which is true. That is totally true. Like, you know, there were ice ages and stuff before, but they don't just happen this fast. Even if the world were naturally getting hotter, our activity, our greenhouse gases are absolutely accelerating that process. Dude, here's the thing, Winston, is that, you know, I I wrestle with this every day in my mind. And I'm always like, why are people so freaking irrational? You know, and I I think it just comes down to we're monkeys and we're tribal and we're like, Mm -hmm. this is my tribe. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, like, you know, back in, like the 90s and even the early 2000s you you didn't have people on on one side that were saying okay you know god guns you know whatever red meat all this shit on that no climate change they weren't arguing for the fact that people need to have automatic weapons you know what i mean because it just wasn't part of the conversation right. people were like yeah you shouldn't have automatic weapons today You'll get those same like people on that side who will who will argue with you till they're red in the face that they need to have the AR-15 right. to protect themselves. Right. How is it that that wasn't even part of the dialogue 20 years ago? It's like when things become like part of that tribe or that religion for that tribe, whatever it is, that ethos. And I'm sure on the other side, I, I'm subject to it, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all you, we all you have, just but they're these blind spots. Yeah, right? they're definitely blind spots. You know, it's on the left and the right. No, no question. You know, I mean, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to me like. The right is whipped into a frenzy by non-issues pretty consistently. Yeah. You could say that's true of the left. Some people might argue, I mean, I don't feel this way in any way, but for example, like the pronoun discussion, which is a big thing that the right likes to attack about the left is, you know, how all they care about is everybody getting their pronouns or whatever. And to them, it seems like a a non-issue that the left is all angry about. But I really don't think they're very equivalent because our society has advanced to the point where that should be the topic that we're talking about because we should be at a level now where we're like, okay, things are good. We've got 
all the food we need and you know all, all that let's now try to advance human rights that direction and at the same time their discussion about human rights is just about what they can get for themselves i guess i don't know yeah it's crazy it's crazy to think about right it's like you just there's there's just like web of you know that we all get trapped it's in. true it's, it's hard true. to even see with clarity where our blind spots are what i try to do in these situations is to try to look at whatever issue it is at hand in terms of the long view of history, I always try to think to myself, how will this affect 100 years from now? How will this affect the world that the next few generations will be living in? And that's how I make my moral decisions, I guess. Well, you know what? And I think that that is a rad perspective because it ties right back into what we're talking about right. today, which is Terminator. Right. And it all starts with, I'm sure, John Connor, 100 years in the future, dealing with a moral decision. Should I send this Terminator back to protect my mom so I can be born? <laughs> You know, this is a really good point. Like we're talking about how bad and irrational the human race can be. So does it really strike you as unbelievable? I think that's one of the biggest parts of Terminator. Before we get into it or whatever, Terminator is real basic. Let me just maybe do the basic outline of Terminator for those of you who have possibly never seen these films. How you could have never seen the films is beyond <laughs> me. I mean, there were such phenomenon. Phenomenon to the level of Star Wars, in my opinion, at least at the time in the early 90s. Yeah. Huge, huge successes and it gets referenced constantly. So the basic premise of Terminator is this. Somewhere in the 1990s, actually it's in 1997, according to the canon, a AI computer system comes online. And when it does, it instantly in a nanosecond determines that human beings are a global threat period and it gains control of all the weapon systems in the world and launches a worldwide nuclear war that kills half the, the human population all at once billions yeah billions i think three billion is the number they keep saying in the first two movies i'm pretty okay. sure i'm pretty sure that's right three billion people are killed on judgment day and the other survivors are hunted down then by robots built in automated factories by this computer, Skynet, and they're just used specifically for hunting down humans. And the human race is on the brink of extinction, but a man rises up and shows everyone that they don't have to suffer under the robots anymore and begins a resistance and eventually leads human beings to overcome the machines. And in a last desperate attempt to defeat the human beings, the Skynet invents time travel and sends a robot back into the past to kill John Connor, the leader of the resistance mother, before John Connor is born. And that's where the first film, 1984's The Terminator, begins. So let's do a little history lesson, I guess, about The Terminator, the first film in the franchise. In my opinion, it seems to me like more people that I talk to have seen Terminator 2 than have seen Terminator 1. Yeah, I, th I think that's pretty clear even from the, from the box office. I think the first box office was like 80 million and the second was like 520 million. Yeah, absolutely. That's also true of like video sales as well, even though The Terminator did enjoy healthy VHS sales in its time, which is one of the reasons Terminator 2 got greenlit 
and you know was such a success is because the lore of the first movie existed already. But a lot of people, especially younger people, have never watched the first film because the second film really does catch you up pretty quickly with everything that happens in the first film. Okay, but I think it's important that we talk about the first film, dude. You know, and let me tell you something, man. I what's so crazy about you saying that was as I went back and watched them, I first watched T two. <laughs> I don't know why. But I was like, okay, I found this one first. I'm just going to stream it real quick because I know the, the 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 movies. And then I went back and I watched T1, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> this thing is so badass yeah. for how – and it is very different. You know, as we've been talking about, like especially as we went back and we talked about Close Encounters – uh, of the third kind. One of the things, even with the books that I'm reading, I've become aware of recently is that for me, one of the most important aspects, and this, as we talk about the whole sequence of, of movies here and the sequels, mm -hmm. for me, one of the most important things in sci-fi or storytelling is actually tone. Mm -hmm. Like I'm for always sure. like when I, when I return to something, again and again and again, it's always because I love the tone and I kind of love how it makes me feel and it's fun and it's, you know what I mean? Absolutely. doesn't mean that a gritty movie or book, I won't enjoy it. I do enjoy it, but I don't tend to return to it. And I think that T2 for me had almost more of a popcorn of feel that was really, really yeah, fun, yeah. right? And one wasn't as much. Terminator 2 definitely takes the grittiness of the first film and expands on it in like a Spielbergian almost kind of way. Yes. Yes. And it does make, a, it's definitely fun, much funnier. And, but let's circle back around to that. Mm -hmm. Obviously it was one of the most successful sequels ever, but we'll, we're going to circle back around to Terminator 2. Let's do them linearly because, you know, I think laying the groundwork first with, how the movie came to be. Absolutely. Okay, so James Cameron was working on his very first directing job, and it was called Piranha 2 The Spawning. <laughs> and this, ladies and gentlemen, oh. is a garbage movie. It is <laughs> trash. It, uh, he shares directing credits with two other individuals, and he since completely disavowed the movie. He hated filming it. He hated the script. He tried to make his own cut of it. But all in all, you know, he eventually completely disavowed the film and now considers The Terminator to be his first film. It's crazy. Not even Piranha 1. Piranha 2. <laughs> Piranha 2. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest director, one of the greatest directors of all time started on Piranha 2. <laughs> He's the most financially successful director of all time. Without question, he owns the number one and number three box office films of all time still right now. And, you know, and he's the first director. He. Two of his movies were the first two movies to pass the two billion dollar worldwide mark. So he is what just was that Avatar and Titanic uh, uh, Titanic. Yeah. yeah and just look at the different genres, too. Yeah, absolutely. And he's able to like switch genres a lot or some. He also did a really great action movie eventually. Uh, True Lies. Terrific movie. But, you know, he, he seems to be a science fiction guy. Oh, yeah. Part of the reason that you can really say that about him is because the Terminator story itself 
came from James Cameron. Like he thought of this idea. He had a dream while he was doing editing on Piranha 2. He was sick apparently and just feeling extremely miserable. And he had a dream. And in the dream was just a solid chrome endoskeleton dragging itself out of burning wreckage. Wow. And that was the entire dream. That's like the end of uh, the movie. That's incredible. And he woke up and scratched all that. He scratched a sketch of it. And then that would later become the film. That is so dope. That is so dope. You know what? What's crazy is that I I was reading something where they talked about like after Piranha 2 or during Piranha 2. He was so broke. I mean, for a movie like that, like straight to VHS or whatever the heck it was. I mean, he he didn't get paid. He got paid very little. He's just trying to get his name out there. And and they were talking about how, you know, he came up with this idea for the franchise for the for the first film. And he sold his franchise rights for a dollar to a producer just so and, and saying, listen, you can produce this movie. You can own the franchise rights, but I have to be able to direct to direct it, which is the producer nuts. question in this story is Gail Ann Hurd, who he married actually he would go on to divorce his first wife and marry Gail Ann Hurd a- after they had worked together for a little while probably because he realized he shouldn't have sold her the rights and it was a way to get them back. <laughs> very possibly very possibly Gail Ann Hurd by the way was the producer of the AMC's Walking Dead series later on and Gail Ann Hurd actually has a writing credit on the original Terminator film as well mm. although Cameron says that she didn't really do any writing she did some script edits, but that's it. But that might just be post-divorce talk, you know? (laughs) Uh, I I don't know. Okay, so here's a really cool anecdote about the making of this film. He had the idea. He got through and he made a bunch of storyboards and he really wanted to sell this story to somebody. So he goes to Orion Films and talks him into guaranteeing distribution rights. So now he just needs a studio to make the film. He goes to Hemdale Pictures, which the Terminator is still to this day far and away. I don't think Hemdale Pictures is still around these days, but you know this is definitely the biggest movie they ever produced. And here's how he did his pitch. He made an appointment, and when the time for the appointment came, he had Lance Hendrickson, who appears in The Terminator, who also appeared in Piranha 2, The Spawning, and coincidentally – also has a bit part in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. Funny that we just did that episode. So he has him bust in the door of their offices dressed as the Terminator with gold foil on his teeth and sunglasses and prosthetic cuts all over his face. And No way. Yes, way. <laughs> and scare the crap out of them as the Terminator. And then comes in with his storyboards, finishes the pitch, and they're so impressed by the whole thing that they greenlight $6 million right there in the office. Wow. That's dope. And Lance Hendrickson, of course, would go on to appear as one of the cops in The Terminator. If you haven't seen it, he's got it's not a bit part, but it's not a main character. either. sort of a peripheral character, but he's in it throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. He also has a great part in Cameron's follow up picture to this Aliens Another one of the most successful sequels of all time, who he plays the artificial person Bishop, an excellent character. 
And he would also do tons of other acting parts throughout his career, had an excellent acting career. And another really one I just wanted to mention is that he's in Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow. Wow. A really great campy vampire movie from the 80s if you guys haven't seen it. It's awesome. But what's really funny about that is that after James Cameron divorces Gail Ann Hurd in 1989, he immediately marries Catherine Bigelow. And Catherine Bigelow, you know, if you're not familiar with her career, she did a point break and The Hurt Locker. She won Best Picture for The Hurt Locker. An awesome, awesome director. Okay, so they greenlight the film and the casting begins for this first movie. And there are tons of people discussed to play both the Terminator and Kyle Reese. Sting, who was fresh off the heels of Dune, was considered for the role of Kyle Reese. They eventually landed on Michael Bean, who is one of my favorite actors. He also appears in Aliens and a number of other movies throughout the 80s and 90s. Yeah, he was in Abyss. Oh, yeah, he's also in The Abyss. That's correct. He totally is. And Aliens, right? Yep, and Aliens. He's Hudson. Yeah, he's... He's Hicks, sorry. He's incredible, man. He is so good. Great actor, and he really, really... Okay, so the acting in The Terminator has like that 80s acting kind of quality where everything's just a little bit hammy, and Bean plays that stuff perfectly. He's a great role to cast as Kyle Reese. They choose Linda Hamilton to be Sarah Connor, and... Linda Hamilton in The Terminator and Terminator 2 is one of the most awesome, badass ladies of sci-fi ever. Sarah Connor straight up rules and is just such a hard ass. And so she ends up being perfect casting. Then what's left is casting The Terminator himself. And this was tough because they at first wanted to cast somebody who would blend into a crowd. Because the idea of it initially is that the Terminator can hide in plain sight. And so they thought about a bunch of different casting options. One of them was O.J. Simpson. No way. Y- yes. <laughs> and, and this is where the story gets really funny. Cameron decided that he could not cast O.J. Simpson as the Terminator because – And this is a true story because he didn't find him believable as a killer. (laughs) Oh, irony. Strikes again. Sweet irony. Oh, my God. And as we all know, he was found innocent. And surely that means he never killed anybody. (laughs) That is freaking crazy. Unbelievable. The jury was 12 James Cameron's. (laughs) He was like, I don't believe it. I don't don't see it. While this was happening, he decided to take on an audition for Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Kyle Reese before they had cast Bean. Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Kyle Reese. And in this way, there'd be a smaller person, a less obvious person playing the Terminator. And then the humans would send their biggest, strongest guy back to fight the Terminator. Their biggest, strongest human was the idea. But after meeting with Schwarzenegger... He decided this guy would be perfect to play the Terminator. And he's quoted as saying that while it didn't really make sense that he had an Austrian accent, it worked because it gave him sort of like a odd, almost synthetic feel. Yeah. And kind of made him seem inhuman in a way. Not that Austrian people are not human, of course, obviously. But to an American audience in the 80s, Austrian accents weren't exactly ubiquitous. People weren't hearing Austrian accents all the time. In fact, 
in the few roles that Schwarzenegger had before this. He barely spoke and sometimes was dubbed. You know, he's in the Conan films at the time. He was actually only in one Conan film at the time of this, and he barely speaks. It's crazy to think about anyone else in that role because he just nailed it. He nails it so hard. Like, he really does. And, you know, having just watched The Terminator again for the first time in, I don't know, probably like six years, I'd say. I've seen them both quite a few times, but it had been a while since I saw the first film. He really does just absolutely crush. He only has, he speaks less than 100 words in the movie. I think he only has 18 or 19 lines total, but he delivers them just so perfectly. It it really is amazing that he came off of just being a world famous bodybuilder. And if you guys didn't know that about Schwarzenegger, he was Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia. I think he won the Mr. Olympia bodybuilding championship six times in a row or something like that six times in a row seven times total he was a badass man and if you guys haven't seen pumping iron the arnold schwarzenegger documentary totally worth it awesome movie super entertaining really funny yeah his charisma is so undeniable it's it's off the charts off the charts even back then when he was just a bodybuilder yeah he's funny he's freaking yeah it's the thinking about him like in, you know, anyone else in this role, like as I watched the movie last night, you know, from a story standpoint, I'm always like looking at a character and I'm saying like, what is the arc of the character? That's what makes it so interesting. You know what I mean? Like each of these characters have like an, a great arc. Now he's the villain, right? And he right. doesn't have much of an arc, you know, in the sense that he's going to change. But dude, as I watched it last night, he does have a physical arc where he comes in and he's like his hair is kind of blow dried. It looks great. He's good looking. And dude, he degenerates <laughs> like over the course of the film to where he almost becomes like a zombie cyborg where his mm-hmm. the, his eyebrows are gone. They're burned off. His hair is like scorched. His his face starts looking all blue. And then you start to see see the 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 metal underneath it dude i thought the practical effects and what they did with his character bar none was incredible it was just amazing i was like that is dope man that actually leads me perfectly to my next point the you know we're a big we're big fans of practical effects on this show uh, we talk about them all the time and how yeah we work with them this is the first time i think that we're going to get to mention one of the gods of practical effects Stan Winston Mm. and Stan Stan Winston studios is probably the most successful practical effects studio of all time. I would say the Stan Winston school still teaches practical effects and special effects makeup today. And I think there are several locations at this point. So Cameron actually wanted an old school legend, Dick Smith, and he had done the some of the effects for The Exorcist, which are excellent. And he, you know, aged Marlon Brando in The Godfather, which was at the time like a really successful makeup effect. If you haven't seen The Godfather, watching Brando get aged is pretty impressive. So it, he actually went after this guy, Dick Smith, and Dick Smith declined because the movie was really small. A $6 million budget is not a tiny, tiny budget for 1983, 84 but it's not the kind of budget that this, you know, legendary guy was looking for. Dude, it, it was so small, though, and you're right, but it was so small that they gorillaed some of it where they were shooting just Arnold Schwarzenegger on the street with James Cameron. 
uh, mm-hmm. guerrilla style without permits, without insurance, just because they didn't have the money. And I read this thing where they talked about how there's a scene where Schwarzenegger is on the streets of L.A. and he like smashes a station wagon window to get in and take the car. But it was just he and James Cameron because they couldn't afford anything else, you know, and they hid his clothes like out behind the car in case like regular street clothes in case cops came up. He could like change real quick and they could say, oh, we weren't filming. Nuts. Wow. That's I did not know that. That's a great anecdote i love that yeah so it's not that much money man you know when you talk about you know making a you know blockbuster movie absolutely and this movie okay so this movie was successful like i read some mental floss thing or something that was saying that the movie didn't perform that well in box office but it did for a six million dollar budget i think the box office was something like 60 million bucks 80 million 80 million 80 million bucks huge box office results for a small budget picture and like i said it's vhs sales were epic it's definitely one that people love to get because it's a scary movie it's a thriller so it's the kind of thing you take home and you know watch late at night that kind of thing yeah over and over how many times did you see this on vhs i can't even tell you i dude i had terminator and terminator 2 that's why i've seen it so many times these were definitely ones that were in our vhs collection and i just played them until they wouldn't play anymore (laughs) Just want to mention real quick some of we, – we talked about it briefly. Stan Winston's other accolades. He also would go on to do a lot of the Aliens effects in Aliens. He did Steven Spielberg's Dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Bunch of other effects too. Yeah. The man was a legend. He died a while back, but you know, at the time. So, But this is really where his career kind of got started as well, more or less. One more anecdote I want to throw out there when we're, since we're talking about Aliens is that after they had cast Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the contracts were signed and everything – Dino De Laurentiis exercised a contract right of his own to get Arnold Schwarzenegger to be in the Conan sequel. Oh, Destroyer. Conan the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. The production schedule, they had, which they had already laid out and made and everything for the Terminator, got scrapped and moved nine months back while Schwarzenegger went to Mexico to film this movie. Worst movie ever. Yeah. because. <laughs> <laughs> well, Schwarzenegger's heart really wasn't in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's part of it. But while this was happening, though, James Cameron wrote the script for Aliens, being a big fan of the original film, and he wrote the script for Rambo First Blood Part 2, which the studio just happened to hire him to do so he could make some extra money in the meantime. Wow. James Cameron is not the type to just sit idly by. Okay, so the movie, everybody gets cast. The movie gets made. And it's a great success. Everybody's stoked with the way the dailies are turning out. Schwarzenegger apparently at first thought the movie was going to be just a flop sort of. And he thought it was just an opportunity for him to try to expand his acting chops, to try Mm -hmm. to learn more about being an actor besides just swinging a sword around. For him, this was an opportunity just to try to like grow as an actor. Mm -hmm. And he didn't expect it to be big at all. But then he started seeing dailies returned and was like, oh, crap, this is going to be big. I'm realizing now that this is going to be big. And he just started getting more and more into the idea. So the movie comes out and it is a big success, as we've discussed. But then the studio that produced the movie gets sued by one of my favorite science fiction writers of all time, Harlan Ellison. Oh, why don't you tell him what a crabby guy this is? Okay, I'm definitely going to get there. Okay, so I love Harlan Ellison. I love him to death. I love watching his interviews. But 
man, does this guy have a chip on his shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> like I've never seen. Okay. So Harlan Ellison, if you guys don't know, was a really famous script writer. He wrote one of the most famous episodes of the original Star Trek series, The City on the Edge of Forever, which if you haven't seen that episode, go watch it. It's awesome. He wrote some Twilight Zone episodes. He wrote Outer Limits episodes. Short stories. Lots of short stories. He wrote a couple of my favorite all-time short stories, one called Pain God, which I love. He was really famous for one called Repent. Harlequin said the TikTok man, which is a wild name for a story, I'll admit. And I have no mouth, but I must scream, which is another absolutely wild short story with some Terminator qualities to it as well. In what respect? I haven't read that story. The story of I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream is about the last survivors of humanity on Earth living down inside of a supercomputer that has killed all of the people in the world and is basically like a god now. It's so powerful. And it's built all of these corridors and factories within the Earth using you know robots. And it basically is just keeping the last few people alive just to torture them. Oh, dude, I did read that story. For its own entertainment and changing their bodies into disfigured monsters and all sorts of stuff. It's a really wild story, but that is not what caused Harlan to sue. Harlan actually sued them because he thought that the script was very much like an episode of The Outer Limits that he wrote based on one of his short stories The story is called Soldier from Tomorrow, and the episode of Outer Limits is just called Soldier. And basically, the plot of that story is two soldiers are fighting against one another in a future war, and they get sucked into a time vortex and brought back into our present day, or the present day on which that episode was released in like the early 60s, and how they adjust to that. Ah, how is it? The short story is less like the episode... The movie, I guess, if it ripped off anything, which I personally do not believe it did. Let me just go ahead and say that. I love Harlan Ellison, but I think he's wrong here. Okay. You know, I think he was wrong here. But he also sued tons of people. He was extremely, (laughs) extremely litigious. Cantankerous, right? He was. He was an extremely cantankerous guy. And I actually want to talk about a little bit more about that before we move on. I watched a documentary on him. And it was amazing, but he, it showed like his house that he had the most eccentric freaking crazy house in LA, but this guy was just no question, man. He was angry. He, okay. So this guy was a, I think he was like five foot four and he grew up in this Midwestern town and he was far and away the smartest person in this little town he was living in, but he (laughs) hated everyone there. He was bullied and he just developed this chip on his shoulder and he became this really arrogant really self-righteous guy, but he wrote brilliantly and he was involved with all the good causes too. You know what I mean? He was the original SJW. This guy left LA to go march in the Selma March in the 60s. He made it a point to try to hire all of the black illustrators to do his books. He was a huge advocate of freedom of speech and he put together these books called Dangerous Visions where he would get science fiction writers at the time to write stories that no publisher would possibly publish. Stuff that was profane, sacrilegious, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. he put them together as collections and released them himself. Oh, wow. And they're excellent. He also had one of the best running articles ever in the LA Times 
called The Glass Teat. And you could actually buy these books, collections of these, and they're just weekly articles. And ostensibly, they're reviews of television shows, but they don't read like that at all. They read like extended rants against television being used to indoctrinate people. Oh, no shit. Oh, I got to freaking check that out. Dude, I'll say this to everyone. If you haven't read The Glass Teat, you really, really, really need to do yourself a favor and read okay. The Glass Teat. And he was that. talking about the stuff in the 60s and 70s. Oh, wow. Like way back in the day, was talking about the dangers of using television to create normalized behavior. <sighs> That's heavy. And they are awesome. I have never read one of those articles that I didn't spend the entire time reading it, just nodding my head in agreement. I'm going to get it. Wow. There are two other versions of that too, like follow-ups to that book, but the glass teat starts at the beginning. And the glass teat refers to the television, like the teat on which people get their nourishment. <laughs> and I've got one more anecdote about Harlan before we move on. I think I've said on this show before that I originally got the idea for Infinite Worlds, the magazine, by reading old sci-fi mags with a friend of mine. His name is James Silver. He's in his mid-60s now. When he was a young man, he wrote a short story. And okay, for a little bit of a context here, Harlan Ellison had a fake rivalry with Isaac Asimov. And that is to say they had a pretend, totally made up, they were actually friends in real life, but they had a fake ongoing rivalry they tried to pitch to the public about hard science fiction versus like science fantasy, which is more like what Harlan Ellison wrote. And it was totally, completely made up. But my friend James, in his younger days, wrote a short story about the two of them being at odds with each other and sent it to both Isaac Asimov and Harlan Ellison. He got a reply back from both authors, and he still has them today. I've read both of them, two letters. And the letter from Isaac Asimov basically says, this is hilarious. I wouldn't show it to Harlan if I were you. <laughs> basically the letter from harlan says if you ever try to publish this i will sue the shit out of you what were you thinking writing this <laughs> <laughs> and you know what it's kind of important that we talk about harlan Ellison because he is a titan of sci-fi right? oh for sure for sure i, I mean you, we should be doing an episode on him i'll have to read those other uh, articles but for sure man this guy is that freaking important man absolutely a uh, a real character and i i want to be like isaac asimov but i find myself being more like harlan ellison <laughs> in her life and i struggle to be a less like like not keep a chip on my shoulder and not be uh, pedantic and self-righteous but yeah. you know it's it's getting harder and harder <laughs> yeah, <no kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> okay anyway so that's the story of the terminator okay well how far are we are into this episode i'm having so much fun with this one. Oh, it's so 45 cool, minutes man. okay we're still doing yeah great. yeah yeah, it's such a good one, man. You know, again, it's I think T1 is so rad because you have to think about that James Cameron wasn't like, okay, we're going to do T2, T3 right, and right. all that. And for me, when I went back and watched it, another thing that really struck me was Sarah Connor's arc. We talked about oh, like yeah. uh, like his arc, the Terminator's arc, but her arc is even freaking better because, you know, she starts out, she's almost 
almost ditzy and yeah, innocent yeah. Mm-hmm. and just a clumsy you know, waitress at the beginning yeah. of the movie. Overworked waitress at least. Dude. So from the beginning of Terminator One, you know, if you contrast that with the beginning of Terminator Two and her in that, it's like, oh my gosh. And it's so believable. It's exactly right? and that's the best part about it is that of course she would end up like that. Yeah. Given given those circumstances, knowing what she knew and actually having, you know, been so spoiler. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to leave that one, the Kyle Reese plot point to you have to watch. Yeah, yeah. You got to watch it if you haven't. But it is such a good one, right? And, you know, most of you who are watching this are like, duh, you know, everybody knows that already. But some people don't. So let's just not spoil it. I will like kind of touch on this is what is so cool about T1 is that it's such a mashup in a way of romance. Like, dude, the romance is so heavy in this movie, right? The sex scenes, all of it is just like, wait a minute. The other movies aren't like that. That's what I really liked about it. And another thing I'll say is that I forgot about that part, like the romance and how this is really a romantic story. But another thing that I forgot about was how – the futuristic scenes in it where they're showing, you know, what's happening, why the war and all that. Dude, I didn't realize there was that much of it. I thought it was like a flash forward and that was it, you know? It happens quite a bit. Kyle Reese will just be triggered by something that's happening around him and suddenly the audience will be transported to his time as part of the resistance in the future. And it's excellent. It tells the backstory so smoothly yeah you know what i mean and you could not really- jarring it made it such a sci-fi you know all, it was already sci-fi right it was already sci-fi but going into the future whoa over and over again and you know that's all james cameron james cameron did all of that on that budget that's what's so crazy about it then uh, after this big success james cameron makes aliens and aliens is another gigantic success, widely considered to be one of the best sequels of all time, is so much fun. We've already obviously done an Alien Aliens episode before, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen. That's another one of our favorites. I have my little Xenomorph figures on my bookshelf over here. Big fan. And he really, you kind of have to credit Cameron for starting the franchise, because even though he didn't direct the first film, he really is responsible for franchising it expanding the universe into you know what it became making it more mainstream is really what he did yeah yeah for sure for sure and taking over for ridley scott man this that's big yeah and ridley scott was the sci-fi name at the time exactly. you know what i mean you know like he he had done ridley scott had done alien and blade runner back to back you know and in the sci-fi world, that's just as big as it gets. And James Cameron was like, oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's he's got balls, man. <laughs> and then he directed another super underrated film after this called The Abyss. And if you guys haven't seen The Abyss, that is a killer. So good. It's so different. Cool. It's man. different because it's subdued. You know what I mean? It's not an action movie. He proved that he can make movies that aren't action movies if he wants to. It's got an excellent cast. It's got a really great mood. And it features heavily, is one of the first movies to heavily feature CGI. One of the big box mm. office successes to heavily feature CGI. And Cameron was developing this CGI effect. Basically, the alien, and there's an alien in this movie that lives at the bottom of the ocean, and it's basically made of liquid. It's so rad. It is so surreal. Very cool, cool looking. 
But that effect, that liquid effect was, many people say, was sort of a test run so that Cameron could make the T-1000 in Terminator 2. Robert Patrick's liquid metal Terminator from the sequel. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, what's what's kind of cool about the all the sequels is that if you think about it, T1 is 84. T2 didn't come out for another seven years. You know, so you're right. CGI developed more. Cameron developed more as a storyteller and a director. Arnold Schwarzenegger just became the biggest thing ever in this series. What is so wild is that I always think that in a story, the most important thing is the villain, right? Darth Vader makes right. Star Wars, right? Sure. So Arnold Schwarzenegger made Terminator. He was the Terminator. He was the villain. And then by the time T2 rolls around, Cameron's like, no, we're going to switch this. And and I didn't realize this. Schwarzenegger did not want to be the hero. He was like, we're going to blow it. It's not going to work. But Cameron, again, man... He knew what he was doing. He knew it it was such a switch, right? Like, no, I'm going to make you the hero. That's a good story of Schwarzenegger not trusting Cameron's instincts. Another good story about the same thing is in the original film, Schwarzenegger had a really hard time saying, I'll be back, especially the word I'll because of his Austrian accent. And he argued with James Cameron that he thought that the Terminator would say, I will be back anyway because he's a machine and wouldn't use contractions. Yeah. Oh, here's a little trivia. One of my favorite androids ever could not use contractions. Do you know (laughs) who that android is? Oh, yeah. I I have his clock right here on my wall. That would be Lieutenant Commander Data. That's right. (laughs) I have a clock with his likeness on it on my wall here. Yeah. (laughs) I I just saw the episode. This is a total rabbit hole digression, but I just saw the, the episode where Data makes a child. (laughs) <laughs> an alien child and the child can use contractions that was such a good episode anyways go back on so but, you know if we if we don't reference the next generation in every episode we are <laughs> dude i just watched that like four days ago i watched next generation at least two or three times a week so he argues with cameron about the contraction thing and cameron insists and just makes him do it over and over and over and over again oh. and of course It was one of the most iconic lines of the 1980s. No question. Yeah. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has used that line in probably a dozen movies since then as a reference to that because it became the phenomenon. Totally. And James Cameron just knew somehow he just knew that this would work. You know, you talk about instincts for a director and and a storyteller that he is. His instincts are so amazing. What I couldn't believe was that the villain in T2 how freaking terrifying it was. And, and, and I just wouldn't have, I, you know, for me, it's like you look at Schwarzenegger and you look at that character, like, dude, he was really scary in the first one. And then you get someone who's more just normal looking in a, just a normal person. But dude, with the CGI and everything and just the relentless, even more relentless, I think that's it, right? That's that's what the villain is. It's the relentlessness. And it's the same way in the first movie. It's basically one extended chase scene. And they kind of recapture that in the second film where it's just the dead eyed Robert Patrick 
chasing them and sending his sword arm through people like Michael Myers, like, you know, yeah. from Halloween, all but, you know, having this cyborg, you know, being able to morph into everything capability. It's fuck, man. So cool. We talk about science fiction and horror and the combination of those things. And there's no question that the T-1000 plays directly into that. The scene where the pullback revealed that John Connor's guardians, his foster parents, have been killed and it's actually the T-1000 as his foster mother and while he's on the phone sends his sword through his foster father's head <sighs> and is like holding him up is without question one of the most shocking scenes I've ever, you know, especially at the time when I was a kid and I saw that, I was like, holy <laughs> fucking crap. That scene was dope, man. Yeah. So Terminator 2, this one I'm going to be a little bit more uh, free when we're talking about about spoilers and that kind of thing because everybody has seen Terminator 2. It was, at the time, the most expensive film ever made, and it was a absolute boondoggle for Hollywood. 100 million budget, 520 million box office. Five, it made $420 million. Profit. You know, <laughs> in just the initial box office. We're not talking about video sales. We're not talking about video game franchises. If the Terminator 2 arcade machine with the Uzi was one of the coolest video games of the 90s, without a question. Yeah. Can you imagine all the merchandise and all the uh, the toys and the, yeah. Here, here's a really cool thing that I read. I can't tell you how for sure true this is because you can't really find this information statistically but i've read that the intro to terminator 2 if you guys haven't seen the intro before it's a future battle scene in the year 2029 when the terminators are fighting the resistance and it's probably about four minutes long i'd say apparently that scene cost more to make than the original film oh i'm sure for sure yeah and that is in you know, in terms of production, that is ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they they had made a fair amount of money off that other movie for six million dollars. To sink six million dollars into a four minute long sequence is dangerous. That's how much Hollywood trusted James Cameron. Yeah, by this point, for sure, they're like whatever you want. And okay, so in Terminator Two, as we said, the first Terminator failed. It was killed by Sarah Connor. The second Terminator, which comes to get John Connor when he is a still a boy. And dude, hold on. How good was Edward Furlong? He was amazing. Dude. The cast of that movie is awesome throughout. But Edward Furlong absolutely rules in Terminator 2. You know, and I I think I'm going to go back because this is going to be a trope, I think, of of every podcast. But – I want to talk about how much I hate Phantom Menace and Star Wars <laughs> and how bad the casting was oh right God. for Anakin, right? How does Cameron have such incredible sense to say Edward Furlong is going to steal every scene he's in and yet we're going to cast this kid for Anakin in Phantom Menace who has zero charisma and totally yeah. unbelievable. What in the world was wrong with Lucas? I think part of it is that that I mean, I feel a little bit bad for that kid because George Lucas is not an actor's director. He does not typically get good performances from his actors. Even, you know, Natalie Portman in that movie is pretty flat. And Natalie Portman in the sequels, and I can't even remember his name now, grown-up Anakin, Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen, yeah. 
is terrible in those movies. Really, there's only one good actor in any of those movies, and it's Ewan McGregor. <laughs> like, he's the only person who perseveres against... Liam Neeson. Oh, yeah, and Liam Neeson's pretty good. He's yeah. I mean, he's not, he's certainly not bad, but he's... He plays he's not a, pretty, a whole lot, you know. And he plays a pretty subdued character, too. And I agree, Edward Furlong, as a child actor, was one of the best. He's amazing in American History X as well. Oh, yeah. Which, if you guys haven't seen that, that's a brutal movie about racism great movie watch it if you can so yeah the cast of uh, the movie or the follow-up terminator 2 judgment day is fantastic the acting is awesome throughout even though see that's another thing is james cameron's able to make something more cornball and more believable at the same time somehow yeah like it's not quite the way spielberg does it when spielberg does his kind of campy silliness it feels a little removed it's kind of one of the things you like about spielberg movies but that's not how it is with cameron movies he's better able to capture the real in people and you know the the real cornball that really happens yeah it's like i love pulpiness you know it's like that genre pulpiness especially like in t1 but in t2 also you know where there are these very very pulpy moments but you're right there's this underlying emotional thing that anchors it that makes it just you're riveted right even yeah. though it can kind of pull you out it's a very uh, almost tarantino kind of a thing yeah. right yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so very, very cool. That new school directing style, but like Cameron's one of the ma- the masters of that. And I mentioned True Lies really briefly. True Lies is 100% cornball, but it also still pulls you in. So, you know, I, I got to give it to James. It, and Titanic is another, I mean, obviously Titanic was at the time the greatest box office success ever. ever. Like it, and it lasted for like 20 years or something or 15 years, a really long time before it was eventually overtaken. Yeah. And then it was overtaken by another James Cameron movie. Avatar. Avatar. And, you know, he apparently we've got some more Avatar movies coming our way at some point. And, you know, Avatar was pretty good. <laughs> you know, uh, it's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm not that much. I'm not now. either. You know, it. but James Cameron does know what's going to be popular. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you got to give him to him for that. And yeah. while I, I didn't dislike it, there are some really, really cool effects in Avatar. And it looks really beautiful. There's no question. But the storyline is kind of whatever. Yeah, been there, seen it, done yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, rehashing stories, the hero with a thousand faces, it's it's what makes storytelling tick. And Cameron knows that. And he uses it to his advantage. So Cameron finishes up the series with T2. And, and then T3 comes out. And I know you're not that much of a fan of, of the third Terminator, but I watched it and I, I actually freaking love the movie. Okay, Terminator 3 is not a bad movie. Yeah, exactly. It's not a bad movie. It's good. I think the Rotten Tomatoes was pretty accurate. It was like 69, 70%. Yeah, it has a 6.3 like on IMDb, 69 on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It's not a terrible movie. You know what I mean? It's got its moments and... It was directed by Jonathan Mastow, who directed Breakdown and in U571. I'm just naming some movies off of his IMDb here. Yeah, I, I dug it. I liked the I liked how it kind of picked up. I liked how it really kind of focused on John Connor and, you know, him having this love relationship that we didn't know about and picking up with her and her arc and the villain, the Terminator, the woman was amazing. I thought as a villain. So I thought it worked. I didn't think 
obviously it wasn't as good as T2 or T1. The TX was the name of the robot in that movie, and it was Kristana Loken, who I, I don't know her from anything else at all. But again, yeah, you very, very scary. It was good, right? She was good. A scary character, no question. Then after that came Terminator Salvation. Yeah, I, I hated that movie. What really bothers me about Terminator Salvation is... 2009. So we skipped from 2003 to 2009. What really bothers me about that movie is that it has such a good cast. Christian Bale. I know. Sam Worthington is excellent. Bryce Dallas Howard is awesome. Helena Bottom Carter's in it. Oh, Anton Yelchin, who I absolutely love. He's in Star Trek, the James Cameron Star Trek as uh, Chekhov. He unfortunately was killed. His car, his car rolled into him. His car rolled into him. What a damn shame because he was a really a bright young actor. But anyway, this movie had an excellent cast and it had a good idea for a plot, you know, set it in the future, set it in the rebellion. And we don't need the time travel stuff so much to make a Terminator movie. And I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But what ruined this movie is one thing and one thing only. It was Mick G. I know, right? And I got to tell you, man, Mick G is what I hated most about Hollywood. He's one of those directors who just wants to make stupid action sequences and dumb one-liner, corny, cornball one-liners with no heart. He's terrible at directing actors. He did the third Charlie's Angels movie, I think. Dude, I didn't like the tone of this movie. I thought it was just too gritty and dark, and I didn't care about anybody. I didn't care about any of the characters. At all. And yeah. all the other three, I cared about the characters. And so this one, I was just like, what is this? And I think it, it, it was difficult because th- you're right. This was something we were looking forward to seeing. Like, yeah, I want to see yeah. that. I want to see the future war. But it just it just got completely wrecked by what I think bad directing. And it had a $200 million budget. Can you imagine throwing $200 million away on that director? (laughs) No. What were they thinking? I seriously watched this movie with like my head leaning on one of my hands and it just like slumped further down like (laughs) as the movie went on. They had to pick a new direction. There were just some misfires. Okay. Then after that came Terminator Genesis, which I had never seen which we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So yeah, I thought, I thought it was pretty cool. It was, it was really like a reboot alternate timeline thing. And so I thought it was pretty cool. I didn't think it was great. I think James Cameron was involved in this one as uh, like, a, like he wrote, I think, and helped to develop the story. I like this one. I thought the actress, I thought she was really good. And Amelia Clark, I think it did 440 million off of 150 million. So, you know, I thought it was a serviceable. That's definitely a success for sure. And you know what? I'm going to put it on my to watch list. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's got relatively decent reviews. I just somehow missed this one. And I don't think that Cameron's involved. I'm looking through here and it doesn't seem to me like he's involved. Believe it or not, the film rights, he got the film rights back. And so he is because there's I think there's a clause in copyright law where after X amount of time, it will the rights will revert to the writer. And I think that's what happened. It would have been 25 years or so. Yeah, exactly. And so in that way, he was involved with it. Definitely. I'll put this on my list. You know, I haven't seen it, but I'll definitely watch it. And then finally, and somewhat recently, we had Terminator Dark Fate which brings back Linda Hamilton. This one I watched pretty recently because mm-hmm. I had never seen it, so I watched it for this episode. What did you think about it? It was okay. 
it was pretty good. I mean, it had its moments. I think there was a little bit of forced stuff in it. It felt a little forced at times. The Terminator that they picked. Mackenzie Davis, right? Mackenzie Davis plays an augmented human sent by John Connor, or actually by her, her future. It's a different future timeline where John Connor never lives. So in this movie, John Connor is killed as a child after the events of Terminator 2, but very shortly after the events of Terminator 2, a different Terminator sent from the past kills him. But that Terminator was sent from the past at the same time as the previous Terminators, and they'd already successfully aborted Skynet with the help of Charles Bennett Dyson in the second movie. Uh, yeah. Or Miles Bennett Dyson, not Charles. Miles Bennett Dyson. So Skynet never exists, but it had already sent another Terminator back. And that Terminator kills young John Connor, and Sarah Connor then is basically just living her life. I saw it. I thought it was somewhat forgettable, obviously. And you want to talk about killing? This one was such a bomb that this killed all sequels that were planned. Because they say with the marketing budget and everything, this thing lost like $130 million. Yeah, well. So that was kind of it. <laughs> so yeah, we'll know, who knows when we'll get another Terminator movie now. We kind of stand at a franchise that's sort of in decline. I doubt we'll going to have another Schwarzenegger appearance. You know, he's appeared in all but one. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense, right? It was harder and harder for it to make sense in the movies. Yeah. You know, you know they did, They also, Winston, they had a, I saw like an episode, I think of it, of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, I think it was. Right, the television um, show. Which was a, a television series, and that was forgettable. Yeah. I was like, ah, I'm not really into that. I tried it. So whether so. or not this franchise will ever get rebooted or, you know, resurrected, that remains to be seen. I do believe that they will at least try again at some point in the future. And the reason I say that is because the characters remain as iconic as ever. Yeah. Even though some of these later films have sort of tarnished the reputation. Yeah. I think still people hear the dun, 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 <laughs> and get excited still. I, you know, at least at least that's true for me. So was have to put, yeah, a, no. put a pin in this one and revisit if they you never dude you never know and i tell you what i'm glad we watched this and we watched all these shows i got really stoked on it but you never know when something's going to come back because they just released footage for the matrix four yeah and i never thought they were going to make that one again yeah and yeah. so i'm freaking pumped i'm such a matrix fan not really of the sequels but of the first one we're gonna have to do one on the matrix dude Let's absolutely do one on The Matrix for sure. I'd have to watch both of the sequels. I've seen the first movie like a million times. I'd have to- A million times, right? Um, but I don't think that's a bad idea, actually. I think maybe we could work that in here. We can do that next week. Maybe we could do that next week if I, if I can sit through the two sequels. Um, oh, Dude, the reality is it's just going to be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but it's, it's real weird that everybody knows that this is a film franchise with one good movie and two shitty movies. And we still feel the need to discuss it. Ah, it's so good. Dude. The first Because one. how important it was to the time, you know, it's 21, yeah. 22 years ago now. Yes. All right. Well, listen, man, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about the Terminator. It's an awesome freaking franchise. I didn't think I was going to, they were going to hold up, to be honest. I hadn't seen any of them in a while and I was riveted yeah. from on, on the first two from the moment I started. them. I even liked the third one. So the rest of them, eh, yeah, you know, they're there. If you're, if you're a huge <laughs> fan and you haven't seen them, go back and watch them. But None uh, of them are really terrible except for... Salvation. Salvation. Yeah, it's the only one that yeah. actually is like horrible and is like almost unwatchable. Yeah. 
All right, well, listen, man, let's watch the Matrix series because they just dropped some new footage. And uh, so let's get ready for that because that film is already wrapped and it's going to come out, I think, in uh, December. All right. So, I, love, I love doing topical stuff. So, yes. All right, man. I'm pumped, man. All right, brother. Awesome. So love you still, baby. Up. <laughs> Next week. All right. Later. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full color, ad free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 